episode 86, a new book, Moon Art Science Culture, with authors Dr. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society and Dr. Alexandra Loska, Associate Tutor in Art History at the University of Sussex. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org As the title may indicate, the book is about the science of the moon, but also how it has shaped our human civilization in the past and continues to do so to the present day. It's a book that brings together the traditionally disparate subjects of art and science through something we all know, the moon. Yes, it deals with the Apollo missions, the lunar phases and lava tubes, but you also get to learn about the Nebra disc, Margaret Hamilton, and the fashion of the space age. This broad, eclectic treatment of the moon is reflected in the authors referenced, which include Alexander Pushkin, Cicero, Plutarch, Edvard Munch, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells and Patrick Moore. Published in 2018, this 250 pages include tons of images, many that I would not normally get to see. A fresh take on a very familiar subject from which just about anyone can learn and enjoy. Robert, how did the idea of this book that covers the artistic, erotic, romantic, cultural and scientific aspects of the moon come about? Did you and uh, uh, Alex come up with this idea together? Well, to, to be fair, it's more Alex's idea than mine, I think, Alexandra's idea than mine. I mean, um, yes, I was on board with it and it was certainly timely because obviously we had the Apollo, we have the Apollo 11 landing anniversary this year. But it was, uh, Alexandra can tell you more about its inception, I think, than I can. Uh, I came on board once so once she'd come up with the idea and I was a very enthusiastic about it, but uh, perhaps I should ask Alexandra to give you more of the details of its origin. Um, I have to say, as, a, as an art historian, I was uh, acutely aware of the importance of the moon in, uh, in, in art, particularly in romantic art, which is sort of my period, so the late 18th and early 19th century, and I often wondered why that why that is? Um, why are we so inspired by the moon? And seeing the 2019 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landings coming up, I thought we should really mark it in some way. And I had many ideas, including uh, a book or two uh, and exhibitions and displays. And some of these things um, actually happened. So I pitched this idea about a book uh, about the moon in art and science and the overlap of it to a publisher and they ran with it and uh, luckily I knew an excellent astronomer uh, Robert and uh, that seemed to appeal to the publisher and they they let us um, so you know run with it with our idea 
And, and it does seem to be uh, a fresh look, a different approach to the kinds of books that uh, I read generally. So how did you split up the writing? Is it fair to assume that um, Robert did all the sciencey stuff and you did the arts and culture? Yes, more or less. I mean, we were writing the sort of the, the main bulk of the text, which is about the back of this heavily illustrated book. And it's, I think, eight essays on the moon. And they're very roughly chronological. Uh, and of course, Robert writes a lot about um, moon exploration and the signs of the moon and in the, the you know all, all the scientific sort of background of it and what it means or what it meant to reach it and what might happen in the in the in the future and then uh, you know I've added my essays on the moon in literature and culture in general and so on and and also what it means to artists um, to, you know to have reached the moon did that change how how they looked at the moon and I think it gels really, really nicely because they're, they're, they're sort of interlocking uh, essays. And then we were also asked by the publisher to add more writing in the form of focus pieces. And uh, we had some say in that, but they also uh, asked us to cover certain areas that weren't, you know, covered enough in the essay. So there are uh, some very short pieces um, on certain aspects, such as werewolves or paper moons or particular um, sort of um, scientific aspects of the moon. Well, the bits that I found in most more enjoyable were not the technical stuff, which I'd come across um, many times before, but I guess most of what you've been doing, uh, your aspect, your input, uh, uh, Alexandra, art and culture bit, and particularly some of the stunning images you included, as presumably something very you're very familiar with being an art historian. What are you finding when you go out to do the presentations what kind of people um, are coming to, to, to your events and what kind of audiences has your book attracted? Well, that's very interesting, uh, and, and we need to sort of let Robert say something about this, because for me, some of this is new territory. I talk a lot to groups that are interested in history, you know, and, and culture and, and the arts, so a lot of sort of art history students and sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, University of the Third Age and, and, uh, and other groups, uh, gallery visitors. And that's fine, and I feel very, very comfortable there. But with Robert on this moon tour, I started attending, uh, you know, presenting this uh, to scientists or, uh, you know, a predominantly scientifically interested um, audience. And I get a very, very different response to this. And I have to uh, sort of provide a lot more background. And a lot of them seemed very interested, but, you know, couldn't say much about it. Not many questions for me at the scientific events, but uh, you can see that the audience is realising that maybe there is a much greater overlap between art and science than they'd previously thought. And you can really uh, take particular images and well-known images from both art and science and say, look, there is a bit of art in here and there's a lot of science in here as well, even in the most romantic uh, uh, you know, landscape, moonlit landscape, you have a bit of science and uh, an amazing photograph taken by the Apollo missions has an artistic aspect as well. It is framed by a human being. Dr. Robert Massey, Deputy Executive and Director of the Royal Astronomical Society, 
You're a well-known name in the astronomical field. Are you coming across new faces as you go around talking about this book? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, obviously, if you're going to talk to mixed audiences of the kinds we've been working with, then that's definitely the case. I mean, for example, last weekend we did an event in Lewis, which was about, uh, which which was augmenting a poetry anthology launch, and that's certainly a group of people I wouldn't I wouldn't normally come across. So it does it has been good in that sense in recognizing that well, you know, you you try and have something which stimulates both groups of people. So, for example, if you go to a group of amateur astronomers, as we did a couple of weeks ago in Bristol, then they have a fresh take. And, you know, they, they for example, were reflecting on all the different uh, aspects of the moon in cinema, like the early films like Fritz Lang's Frauenmond. Uh, and then also you find that these artistic audiences, uh, you would try and put across some of the scientific side too that they're less familiar with. So I think, you know, because most people, I mean, most people have some understanding of the moon. It's just such a familiar object. It would be amazing if they didn't. But I think it is instructive to, to sit there and say, well, okay, these are the, just a few of the sort of seminal issues around it. You know, if you want to go back there, what are the kind of barriers? Um, should we do that? Uh, you know, how hard was it getting there in the first place? And, and all these kind of things. So, yes, I'd say I'd say I am uh, encountering new groups of people, and that's been that's been really valuable and interesting. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's not entirely unfamiliar to me because you know you get, uh, you know, I'm I'm busy, so I tend to uh, pick and choose over where I go to go to do things normally. But with the book, I felt more of an obligation to go and do them. And you you find that you get invited to all manner of audiences anyway. Uh, and, you know, quite often, particularly if they're lay audiences at something like a science festival, you do find uh, you do find uh, groups of people with all kinds of backgrounds, including in the arts. But this has been yeah, this has been very, very stimulating. It's it's uh, sometimes, you know, very challenging as well. Very interesting to hear different perspectives. And you mentioned uh, Frau in Mond, the Fritz Lang 1929 film. That was perhaps one of the earliest collaboration between science and science fiction. I struck throughout the book, um, apart from the history and the art aspect of it, this uh, uh, still, am I right to see that even today there is still a strong collaboration, uh, an exchange between science and science fiction? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, honestly, uh, sorry, I shouldn't interrupt Alexandra, but I mean, absolutely, if you look at things like Interstellar, where Kip Thorne was a, was a consultant on really tough physics, uh, talking about what it would be like to fall into a black hole, and obviously that crosses the boundary of uh, hard science into speculation, but nonetheless, the aspects of things like time dilation and so on, that, you know, this, this astronaut is... Uh, aging much more slowly than his daughter is back on Earth. That was based on, on hard science. And without that consultancy from people like Kip Thorne, it would have been much less reliable, I think. So, you know, that there always has been that involvement. And that's, you can't do it completely because you can end up, you, you have to suspend belief sometimes, you know, if you want to cross the universe. We don't know how to do that. And Star Trek and so on invent various things to get around the problems. But it's quite nice when there is that injection of scientific content in it to say, well, you know, what would it actually be like? And that applies to, to bases on the moon just as well. Yeah, I would, I would say, I mean, the Frau im Mond is, is, uh, is something that really fascinates our audiences, our very diverse audiences. Uh, and, and you can see them twitching when we, when we mention this. And I think I do. And then at the end of the talk, uh, Robert shows you know, images of lunar bases or, you know, you know, predicted lunar bases and the similarity between what Fritz Lang 
uh, did with his stage design, stage sets for this 1929 film. Uh, it's astonishing. There, there's so much similarity there. And um, and that's what we're trying to achieve for people to understand, look, this is, you know, a very creative filmmaker, silent movie maker in the 1920s, who himself was influenced by some early science fiction, proper science fiction literature by H.G. Wells and, and Jules Verne and so on, who were, uh, you know, making science fiction sort of believe or space travel almost believable because they were giving us some sort of scientific detail and, and, the, and the, the imagined technology um, that could take humans to the moon. So it, it, it's, all, it's all linked through history, really. Uh, if I could take you back to history, in one of your uh, chapters, I think it's the, the female moon, you talk about, and I'll do a short quote here, you say, Although countless books and websites offer guidance on how to maximise on the link between moon and female fertility, in reality there's no connection between the menstrual cycle and the lunar cycle. No, Hard no, there isn't. In fact, they're, they're, they're of course, different lengths. <laughs> yeah. There was a, a direct link. It's a nice thought, and people like this. And I think it's our desire to want to be connected, and, yeah. and I think that's perfectly valid, and it's fine looking at the moon. Uh, but lunar cycles and menstrual cycles are different, and uh, if there was a connection, all the women in the world would, of course, menstruate at the same time. Uh, <laughs> we're in the same pattern and that obviously doesn't work but it, it, it is I think a human instinct to try and make that connection with our nearest celestial neighbour even when we know it's not correct even when we know it's not correct and what's wrong it, it's, it, 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 in a big scheme of things it doesn't really matter and it's maybe especially now with you know all the light pollution in cities and, and, and you know, everything changing so quickly it, it, we might just need that that's looking at something that unites us I did it last night because Jupiter was visible next to the full moon and uh, it, it's not a bad thing it should be nurtured it's, it's the, the assumption generally people assume the moon has a much stronger biological effect on us than it does. Obviously because it's very visible and it's the only object in the sky that you can see with your eye that has any detail. Uh, whereas, but, and people look at things like the tides and so on and therefore they will assume well, the moon pulls on water on the earth, which of course is entirely true. But it's, it's trying to get across the point that the effects on a bulk scale like that don't, don't translate down to a biological level. You know, it's, it has a, the moon has a huge effect on ecosystems through the tides, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make the water in your bodies move in any kind of significant way at all. But it's, but you do need a bit of hard physics to get that point across, like just how weak the gravitational field is. So you can have those interesting conversations as well. I think rather than being absolutely dismissive of people, sometimes it's quite interesting to explore the arguments and say, well, you know, how do you think this might work? And well, you know, think about the fact that actually gravity is remarkably weak. You know, we, we don't even pull each other together through gravity, let alone having something as distant as the moon having that effect. Yeah, so it's, it's probably much more a psychological phenomenon than, than a biological one. And uh, But I have heard, I have read scientific texts that suggest that we may have changed, you know, our brains a little bit through, you know, millions and millions of years of looking at the moon. Uh, we are drawn to the moon, so it might have made small changes to our brain and how we how we behave. So it's really, you know, behavioural as well. Going back to the Nebra disc, uh, mm -hmm. I've not seen it, and here's something that is really odd that I experience and I can't explain it. So. 
if I was in its presence, I think uh, I would feel a very profound, overwhelming sensation just being in the presence of something so old, knowing that people um, hundreds and thousands of years ago actually looked at that, created it, felt it, handled it. I can't understand why I have that sensation. What, what, what's going on, do you think? Robert, do you want to answer this or shall I? I wish you both talk about it. Um, yeah. Well, it's a really, it's a really good point, isn't it? I mean, also when that when that was discovered, I think there was controversy around it as to whether it was um, whether it was a real artifact or not because it was so ornate, and you can see exactly why that's the case. You look at it and you think, oh come on, you know, this is obviously faked. But and, and to begin with, you know, reading reading some of the stories, I thought, oh, that's a shame. You know, maybe this isn't so important. But when when its origin is proved, when it's demonstrated that it is thousands of years old, you realise you're looking at something which is utterly remarkable. The fact that this this beautiful image of the, you know, what's obviously the crescent moon and a cluster of stars, presumably the Pleiades in the sky, is represented in the, on this fantastic piece of work, that it is chilling. You think, well, you know, that our ancestors, despite all the hardships they had, were able to spend the time to create something of such beauty as is always an, an, an extraordinary thing. Now, I know there are many, many other examples in art and architecture and so on, but still, you know, the fact that something well, that's, uh, that's thousands of years old is, is, can be so well-preserved and can be such a thing of beauty is, is enough for everybody. Well, it, it's both a thing of beauty and it's a ritual object. I mean, that is that is the most of likely sort of, uh, uh, it was the most likely use of this object. It is a sky map, but it is made of metal, of bronze and gold. And uh, yes, it has this romantic and slightly disturbing story of being dug up uh, in 1999 by some metal detectorists, not scientists. And, but, you know, it, the knowing that this is both a map so you know those ancient people looked and observed and recorded what they saw in the sky very meticulously but then it was turned into a beautiful three-dimensional tactile object and then probably used in a ritual sort of context so i can see people sort of you know on on processions of you know walking with this object and other objects of course uh possibly because of something that occurred in the skies, possibly um, an eclipse or possibly just the phases of the moons. And that's what makes it fascinating. And yes, I, I haven't seen it, uh, but I have I've seen similar objects um, in German museums. <laughs> and I've been, I've, been to, I've been to Egypt and I've seen the pyramids and all that. So yes, it, it, it would do the same to me, I think. Um, the... Antikythera mechanism has a quite a strong moon connection. Did you consider including it in the book? The, well, I mean, that's that's yes. I mean, you're right, of course, in the way that it's connected to the calendar and so on. Uh, I don't think we did as such because we were we were looking for things with more probably with more direct inspiration. But uh, and also because there was just a limited number of space and the publishers and editors, we, we didn't always agree on the inclusion of particular images. Mm. Uh, but I mean, I I, I think uh, you know, perhaps if we do a version two, you know, we should we should uh, revise <laughs> that. But it's uh, yeah, I mean, I think well, that's a, that's an example, of course, of you know, an object which wasn't ritualistic. Well, well, we don't entirely know what it's 
use was, but the fact that it's so technically complicated is fascinating as well. And I think it was Mike, Dis uh, Mike Edmonds, rather, in Cardiff, a professor there who spent a lot of time analysing its deeper structure, and that's become a lot easier with more uh, refined analytical techniques. But, I mean, yeah, it's another great thing. I mean, you know, in a sense, there's there's no limit to the number of things you can include in this, and certainly that applies in works of art that are derived from inspired by the moon as well. Yeah. Robert, one of the um, things that I, you, you, I think it's your uh, a chapter on the Naismith and Carpenter's book from nineteen, uh, from eighteen seventy four, the moon. Oh, that's my chapter. That's, I was going to say that's Alexandra's. You know, this is the confusing thing. You can, oh. yeah, it's it's difficult to know which of us wrote which bit to an extent. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you why I thought it was you. I'm so glad it wasn't because I'll, get, I'll read it again now because I took, um, I, I found it. Um, well, first of all, I wasn't aware of it. And it's something that's so profound now having seen it, I was surprised that I hadn't seen it before. Um, so, uh, Alexandra, when did you come across that book and, that, and in what way did that uh, uh, influence you um, in, in, in your yeah. interest in astronomy? Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you've picked that out, and I'm glad you didn't quite uh, realize that it was me who wrote it. We, we did sort of, uh, you know, discuss who should do it. There, there were a few focus pieces where we had to sort of discuss who should do them. But I was very keen to do uh, Naismith and Carpenter. I came across it because I'm a bibliophile, and I was sort of hoovering up in the last couple of years. I've been hoovering up uh, early books about the any sort of literature about the moon. And this one, you know, uh, I was particularly interested in because it was described as a sort of popular book about the moon from the sort of second half of the 19th century. And I thought, well, well that's interesting because photography had just arrived, but we couldn't quite get to the moon yet. So I wonder how they illustrated this book. And uh, I understand one of them was an astronomer, the other one wasn't. And they have a bit of photography in there, one photograph of the moon. But um, when it comes to detail uh, of, you know, how the moon surface might look like uh, and explaining certain sort of, you know, aspects of the moon and how it appears to the human eye and through a telescope, they, uh, uh, they started getting really creative and they used, they used um, some plaster models, which they made and then lit carefully, you know, creating some little craters uh, on the moon and then photographing them in a studio. And they did other things too, which, which um, really quite moved me. Um, they, sh they photographed the back of a, a wrinkled human hand <laughs> to explain some formations and, and structures of the moon's surface, uh, or uh, a shriveled apple, or a cracked glass globe. So I think it's a wonderful example of, you know, artistic creativity and scientific sort of, you know, uh, um, uh, sort of endeavor and, and trying to make uh, the story of the moon sort of accessible to, to a wide audience. So I absolutely love this book. And um, it, it did have an impact despite us actually getting to the moon or getting closer to the moon in the in the 20th century. You see these images that they've used in their book used again and again, particularly sort of in, in, in popular uh, literature about the moon. So they, they appear all the way up to the 19th 50s, when of course you know the Russians are getting better pictures of the moon, and then the Apollo missions, of course, uh, bring us back, uh, you know, close-ups of the moon. So it's a wonderful example of the overlap between art and science. 
There's a copy in our library, actually, uh, Gabir, if ever you're interested in seeing it. Oh, actually. Well, I'm holding a copy here in my hands. <laughs> Well, doing this video call. <laughs> well, I've got a third edition here in my hands. Well, prompted by your uh, your book, I actually found it online. Um, it's available for download. Uh, I've got a really uh, beautiful quality uh, digital version, and the pictures you describe so well are in there. And it, it is one of one of the things that. I find fascinating about reading a book or watching a documentary is that it leads you to stepping stones to so many other things. And I would never have thought that I would have found this book through yours. So well done on that. And shall I tell you why I thought it was Robert who wrote it? Uh huh. Tell, tell us. Yes, I'd yeah, like to hear. <laughs> it's quite, yeah, it's, it's not that rational. Uh, I'm calling you from near Manchester. And John Naismith, uh, as you may know, he spent a lot of his time working here in Manchester during the Industrial Revolution. And one of the things that he built was what he's known for is the steam hammer, long before he started his astronomy and telescope building work. And uh, if you ever go to Bolton at the university there, outside, there's a huge um, disused now um, steam hammer from Naismith on the campus grounds. And I thought Robert's connection with Bolton, uh, one of the places, one of the many places you've been to study, Robert, uh, is that correct? Very true. Yeah, yeah, no, I was there for a year, absolutely right, yeah. exactly. Uh, uh, so, is it a rational uh, connection that I made on my part? So, thank you very much well, for that. <laughs> I, mean, we do, I mean, some of these chapters, you know, one, I mean, at least to an extent, I mean, I probably could have written about Naismith, actually, although I would have done it in a different way because of his technical creativity as well. But I think his book, Although you look at it now and you think, well, some of the ideas, like the way they think the, the rays extending from craters are actually cracks on the surface and so on, some of those ideas are superseded. But the, the beauty of the analogies is really, really something to see, you know, and I think that's, that was a great example of popularizing it by saying, well, these are idea, our ideas about the, the theories for the surface, you know, in, in an era before you're able to sit there and code up animations and share them online, uh, you know, the fact that you talk about a wrinkled surface and, you know, the back of a hand and so on is attempting to bring those concepts to a really big audience. It's a, it's a really uh, interesting way of approaching it. And, and I found some of his narrative, just 150 years old, um, really quite refreshing, despite uh, despite its age. It's a very attractive, appealing way of writing. Okay, I've got a question for both of you. Um, USA's Apollo and now Artemis, India's Chandrayaan, China's Jade Rabbit. Why do we use such old, indeed ancient identities? To name something new when it comes to the moon. For missions, I think it's just the the uh, I guess it's the project teams look at exactly the kind of things we've been talking about. They look back for mythical figures and, and sometimes sometimes uh, not just mythical figures, but also you know early explorers and or early uh, astronomers and scientists as well. But I, I think it's very much connected with that. You know, if you're looking at China, they're thinking, well, what are the Chinese cultural symbols, the cultural figures that we can use to name our spacecraft to make it identifiably Chinese? And, you know, or, or in, in the West, we tend to look to, to well, 
similar figures actually you know there's wasn't there a Celine mission and so on you know all of these things uh, combatants I suspect there's also an issue of well how many times do you want to you know name a mission lunar reconnaissance orbiter one two three four five you know or the very large telescope and so on you know we have a we have a tendency to embrace acronyms uh, and it's probably a bit nicer if those acronyms are actually connected to something more meaningful yeah I think it's very evocative and it makes uh, it helps popularize any of these missions and they do need popular support and you know people need to be interested in them in order to you know uh, uh, um, actually justify them and, and memorable as well they need to be memorable yeah, names yeah 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 and it is a personification in in many instances it's it's putting a human face or, or at least of you know a creature sort of name and face uh, and, and and shape to you know something highly technical and very sort of you know very sort of and, and scientific, um, uh, and it's you know, and it really underlines the fact that we have, as humans, we have this ancient link with the moon. We've always tried to reach the moon and make sense of it, and include it in our, in, um, in our lives and culture. One of the things that I've learned from one of the many things I've learned from your book um, was the reference to India's. Um, moon mission called Chandrayaan. Originally, it was going to be called Somayan, which is something that you included in your book, uh, one of the old ancient names for the moon in, in India. Um, I also learned that, uh, as you'll know, the very first Indian um, astronaut or cosmonaut to go in space was Rakesh Sharma in 1984. And his mission patch actually had a chariot with a couple of horses, and I never understood why that was the case until I read your book and that connection between chariots and horses or antelopes. So thank you for that. <laughs> there you go. Mission achieved. Our mission. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alexander, I found many quotes that are fascinating. I'm putting them down to you. I may be wrong, so put me right. Uh, one of them, and I think it's a chapter uh, called Arriving, and you say... Did we lose that silver mirror in the sky, the nightly wanderer, the anthropomorphized disc, the spiritual timekeeper, the winking eye, the object of contemplation, the symbol of love, melancholy, loneliness? It seemed for a while we did. As we now come to the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landings, is it something, the moon, that you're seeing coming back to the public imagination now? Well, I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised uh, to see how much interest there is now. I don't think there was much in the first sort of, you know, from the sort of mid-70s, really, when I was growing up, until the mid-late 90s. Uh, I was always interested in it for, for a number of reasons, but I couldn't see much. Uh, I mean, Robert will, will know more about, you know, what was happening in, in uh, you know, in, you know, in, in his um, field of expertise, but in art and generals of interest, I couldn't see much. And then it kept, it, it, it came back at the sort of turn of the millennium. And now I see many, many contemporary artists uh, responding to the moon in new ways. Some in sort of, you know, some, you know, being inspired by, you know, uh, sort of romantic artists, but a lot of new artists also uh, putting it in an environmental context now, 
and I find that hugely, hugely exciting. There's several moon exhibitions going on now, more opening up. There have been some already. And uh, I love going to see what people are producing now in, in, in the arts and also what people write about the moon now. So I've also commissioned this little anthology on new poetry inspired by the moon. And thank yes, I'm, I'm really, really pleased that there is quite so much coverage now in 2019. I mean, the, yeah, the, I think the thing with the Apollo era is that into the, into the, certainly into the 70s and early 80s, it was the defining piece of space exploration. Well, it is the defining piece of space exploration, but I suppose I mean that it was very much in our minds. The only things that were going on at that time were really the Soviet space program and then after 1981, the space shuttle missions. And the Soviet space program, although they, you know, in a sense, they're still using very much the same kind of rockets and, and spacecraft that they had 40 years ago, they did get on with things and they constructed space stations and so on. So that was much more visible. Uh, and I guess the assumption would have been in the mid-70s that a mission to Mars was not far off, that, you know, it was simply a matter of... Uh, having another large-scale kind of program to get us there. And, of course, that, that never came about, and I don't think it will in, in quite that form in the future. And we then looked to things like robot exploration, and it's it, it, it's more difficult to galvanise people around that. I think if you, you send back phenomenal images to some other planets, that has had an impact, but it's clearly not going to be the same as people walking on their surfaces. So I guess... I can see Alexandra's point about the, the impact on art fading away. My suspicion is that it was always ticking along in the background and people are inspired to do science, although that effect clearly diminishes over time. So, I, yeah, I, I, I think it, there's, nothing, there's nothing since that has been as impactful, it's fair to say. Probably if we build a lunar gateway and we go back to the moon and we have the space station in orbit around the moon, that will do some of it. And certainly a mission to Mars would do that, but I don't think that's on the cards for, despite the various announcements that get made by US presidents and vice presidents for another 20 or 30 years or so, at the, at the very least. So in our time, maybe maybe that return to the moon will do the same thing. It clearly won't be quite the same as it was in the 60s because we've done it before. Do you think the fact that we did go to the moon and robotic exploration, has that undermined or diminished its cultural and artistic value in modern society? Hmm. Uh, I'm guessing this is a question for me. Both of you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, and, and this has happened in, in, in other areas. It happened when Newton split white light into rainbow colours, and some people, you know, some people were concerned that you know the romance then goes away. Once you have explored something, once you got there, you've achieved it. You know, is it still of interest? And uh, I, I did wonder how people responded to seeing those images from the Apollo missions. You know, it wasn't as exciting as all the science fiction literature of the previous centuries would, would want us believe. It wasn't full of colour. It was largely monochrome, silvery, grey and black. And uh, the only object that had a lot of colour, of course, apart from the, the equipment, the Apollo equipment, was, of course, Earth. So we looked back at ourselves and saw that wonderful blue marble uh, in, in space. So did people think, well, it's not as exciting as we had imagined. But I think now, with maybe with that sort of bit of you know, distance of, of half a century, uh, 
you know, people are inspired by the moon again. And I think some of these exhibitions will be blockbusters. And, you know, there's so many books now coming out, not just ours, uh, looking at the moon from all sorts of angles. And I think, I think we've sort of reconnected with the romance of the moon. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Not not so much this year, where there will be vast interest, but in the years to come. And that probably does very much depend on what exploration is happening. You know, whether we're seeing even those live the live footage from rovers on the moon and that kind of thing. Um, my guess is that it'll fade a little bit next year, simply because we'll be so overwhelmed by everything this year. I mean, just wait until the media pick up as they as they properly will do in July on the, on the Apollo Eleven landing anniversary. The yeah, I, I think the the exhibitions Alexandra refers to will, will capture that really nicely. And that, that it, it's great, actually, that even in the UK, there are so many of these things you can go and see quite apart from the, the rest of Europe and obviously in the US. I wonder how it will change if we if we see people going back there, you know, what that will do. Will it become, as it did to an extent towards the end of the Apollo program, a bit too routine? Um, because, you know, for example, the Apollo 14 and 15 landings and so on, I think by then people... Not, not enthusiasts, but the population as a whole assumed this was something that would just continue on a regular basis. And once the novelty had worn off, that sense of being the first, that, that outright sense of discovery, that, that it was more difficult to sustain that interest. And the, you know, I, I genuinely don't know how it'll play out, but it, but it will be interesting to see beyond the 50th anniversary period itself how things change from there. I mean, on the on the 40th anniversary, there was there was interest, but but much less so than this year. On the 30th anniversary, you had things like the Full Moon Exhibition at the Hayward Gallery, which actually I think was pretty unusual then. I mean, it was a, it was a great exhibition with all the the original images and the Apollo missions uh, rendered in, in beautiful print and displayed around that gallery. But I'm not sure that much more was going on in that year. There probably were various amateur lectures and so on that people gave, but it didn't have anything like the profile that we've seen now. So just finally then, um, uh, I think the book came out October last year and it was before the American vice president announced that the USA would go back to the moon and have Americans, including a woman, walking on the lunar surface by 2024. Do you think they'll do it? It's really ambitious. Uh, I think it's I think it's completely feasible to, to construct the space station in orbit around the moon by then. A landing is is a hard thing to do. I mean, you have to build, you, you have to carry. It, it's getting into orbit, basically. You know, you you know, uh, you be you know, you launch things. You you leave, your payload is relatively small. In the case of a moon mission, you then have to do the same thing at the moon as well. So you build your your structure that goes down to the surface and only return a bit of it to orbit. Quite that what that will look like with the Lunar Space Station, I don't know. I suppose you have the opportunity to construct things in situ to an extent there and perhaps return the, the whole vehicle to orbit rather than you know leaving stuff behind as you did in the Apollo program. But it's still 2024 for a landing. It's certainly possible, but whether they achieve that, I'm, I'm much more doubtful about that. The Space Station, the Lunar Gateway, is much more of an international project and the European Space Agency is on board as well as a big partner. So my guess is that that's more likely to happen. And that will that will be a really exciting thing to see. I mean, we still have to deal with the capricious nature of the Trump administration on this. I mean, Pence uh, being on board with it and then Trump in a tweet deciding that it's boring last week and that we should go to Mars, <laughs> which is a part of the moon. I mean, you know, that you couldn't write it really. So uh, pre- presidential edict and whim plays a part in this too, I feel. So I know you 
to have been doing some talks around the country. What's in the calendar coming up in the next few weeks and months? Well, the most exciting one for me, I have to say, is uh, that we're going to Stonehenge. So we're giving our, our talk, our sort of double act of a lecture uh, at, uh, at Stonehenge, which is surely <laughs> the most uh, appropriate um, uh, venue. And I'm, I'm busily adjusting my part of the talk. I'm looking for some romantic images of Stonehenge by moonlight, of which there are many, because <laughs> it's a combination of the sublime and, and, uh, and the romantic. The Stonehenge, I guess, that's, you'll be... Um, scheduling that with the summer solstice. Do you have a specific date? <laughs> no, no, not quite. No, not it's, quite. it's the tenth of July. But ah. uh, uh, there's there's really just a packed uh, diary. Actually, actually, I've got um, two conferences before then as well. So I'm not yeah. I'm not sure of things to do. And after <laughs> Stonehenge, would, we are doing the uh, Blue Dot Festival up in Cheshire in uh, uh, not the following weekend. Actually, so from the the twenty first, I think is the schedule for our talks. That coincides with the Apollo anniversary itself. Um, and then there are talks in London again at the Woolwich Moon Festival on the... I'm losing track of this. Actually, I think it's the 23rd. So yeah, we're going to have to have T-shirts printed. The Lunar Mission, cool. the Losky Massey Lunar Mission. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jodrell Bank will be exciting, I guess. Manchester will be exciting, the Blue Dot. That's another great, great place. Well, I look forward to catching up with you then. But in terms of books... Have you got anything else in the pipeline? Either uh, of you? Not, not on this yet. We're working on it. I think the uh, we're waiting to see how this one uh, does, really. And then it would be it would be nice to do something, say on Mars, for example. But we just need to. Uh, yeah, I have been asked about this. Mars or the Sun? Um, yes. Um, no, nothing in the pipeline as yet. But this anthology of poetry has also just come out. And I've called that "Pale Fire: mm-hmm. New Writing on the Moon." Sort of sixty contemporary poets, uh, you know, having it inspired by the moon. It's just a little thing. So no, now we have to. I, I'm I'm really looking forward to the buzz. Excuse the pun <laughs> around the actual anniversary in July and and see what the mood is uh, at, at, at the moon festival. So for good weather, it'd be quite nice because the moon is actually visible in the sky that night. That would be really nice if it could mm. refer to that too. Yeah. And finally, Robert, um, the Royal Astronomical Society, anything uh, in the way of news to share from there? Oh, well, I mean, generally, you know, I mean, our usual stuff, we've got a new president, our first woman president, actually, for about a decade or more than a decade, um, Emma Bunce, it will take over next year. So that's going to be nice. She's a planetary science scientist, actually working on uh, missions to Mercury and Jupiter. So she will likely have a great interest in this, too, because plan- hopefully, anyway, most planetary scientists take an interest in the moon and all the planets of our solar system. So that's a nice thing. Uh, and then it's uh, the main thing for us, apart from the, the stuff we're doing this year, is the... 200th anniversary of our foundation in 2020 so we will have a a range of events not just for our members but also for the public that take place over that year too so i'm looking forward to that it could be quite a lot of creative things going on well, i look forward to catching up with you at the blue dot festival in person both of you and uh, until then thank you very much indeed both uh, dr robert massey and dr alexandra Loska. thank you Gilbert. thank That's you a pleasure.